This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, why won't any politicians touch 24 Sussex Drive? I'm curious. They're spending money left and right with consultants. So I called Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP. He helps us understand why the Prime Minister's home is a no-go zone for most politicians and why governments won't fund the necessary renovations for the home of Canada's Prime Minister. How do you find a tiny little capsule of radioactive material in the Australian outback when it was lost on a 1,400-kilometer drive? Laura Boxman with the Radiation Safety Institute of Canada helps us understand the staggering amount of missing radioactive material around the world and how they find it. Are you okay with, also on the podcast, Groundhog Day? Sad news, Groundhog Day this year. And how about rocks? It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. I wanted to get into conversation about 24 Sussex, but I wanted to get into it because I don't understand why nobody will fix it with all the money that's getting pissed around these days. Former Liberal MP Dan McTagg joins us here. You know him as the uh, the, the gas guy, uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy. But many people not uh, may not catch on to the fact that Dan was an MP, a Liberal MP, uh, years ago, had many different roles, many different committees. Um, I think you call them files. Is that what you guys are, folders? I don't know what you guys call them. You, you MP people. Um, and you did, and you were around all this stuff. So uh, who do I go to to understand how politics work is you? I'm fine, Shane. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, files, portfolios. Portfolio. Work committee. There it is. The, uh, the, the schlepping uh, lot for... Uh, for your uh, for your party yeah. and uh, for your government, yeah, we were different times. I guess twenty years ago, when you were in the thickest of your work, um, you worked for a while after that. But the um, I, I was curious to ask this question right off the hop: Is why is Twenty Four Sussex such a hot potato that none of the parties, none of the organized governments, for so many years have wanted to touch it? Because it's a lot of money, and uh, it's also a symbol of uh, you know, uh, for some most people, of largesse. Why should a prime minister live uh, in a in a mansion? I mean, it, Canada's not the United States. Uh, we don't have a White House. You know, we don't have, uh, you know, the same kind of uh, belief that our our leaders should be held in in such high uh, esteem. And yet, it's a beautiful mansion. Um, yes, it would cost millions to fix it, but has anybody ever bothered to figure the cost of building these days? I mean, you can't build anything in this country. Yeah. For under five hundred dollars a square foot. Have you seen the the French Embassy next door, <laughs> or the or the or the British High Commission right down the street? Like looking down. I don't think uh, that it's wildly out of scope with the neighborhood. Not to mention um, across the street, the Governor General's pad, um, either. Well, I think you need to have uh, you know a serious discussion, you know, by people who are outsiders, not insiders, those who don't have any skin of the game to say, all right, you know, we get the thing, you can be grouchy about your politicians, but this is really about whoever, it doesn't matter. There will be future prime ministers uh, of this country, hopefully many to come for many, many decades and centuries to go, one hopes, and that they need a place to stay. And it's, I think the Americans had the same problem with their White House back at the turn of the last century. It almost collapsed. It was, it was in, you know, a very rough shape. We in also the kind of burned it down too, you know, it's kind of our fault. So, well, yeah, I mean, but we let it go. I've been in that. <laughs> I've been in that building. It's beautiful. Yeah, no, I mean the old White House that we burned down. Yeah, it was kind of. A, oh, sorry. There's yes. that one. Yeah, well, you know, uh, they get, getting yeah, they they got us back by burning my city here in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, so. that's fair. 
Um, well, so, I mean, the reason I guess why I asked this, Dan, is because we're seeing all these consultant numbers, $100 million, a uh, 60% increase from back in the day when Trudeau said he would spend less on consultancy. I think it's a, a surprising number when you hire MPs to go do their job and then they're basically subcontracting it out. Now, I realize that's very lazy and convenient language, but really optically that's what it looks like, is you're hiring a company to decide and then in today's global economy, you have all these companies that have their fingers in the pot with all kinds of different governments anyway. And and like you said, and the way I understood 24 Sussex was, it's too much money. $40 million is too much money for a house. But if you throw into how much money's been thrown about even in the recent news to consultancy fees, it's actually not a lot of money. And some of the MPs have come on and said, $10 million, that's not a lot of money on tape. So we've lost context with money. So to me, that $40 million is not even an argument. Well, Shane, people listening to this are going to say, you know, whatever. But the folks that do the building out there, the ones who actually understand mortar, concrete, uh, who understand steel, who understand the cost of trusses. If the decision is simply, then it's a two, two, two decisions have to be made. Do you want to tear it all down, demolish it? In which case, the cost of demolition, you're looking at no more than seven, 800,000 bucks. I don't care who you are. That's about the cost of demolition. I'll get a company here in Toronto. Pinella will be happy to go up there and uh, mm. tear it down. I'm sure there's a thousand other demolition companies. They'll do it eight, 900. In fact, if they get to keep some of the stuff in there, they'll actually, that'll drop the price. Yeah. Then you build it. You build it for, okay, and here's a number. And you can, you'll have a lot of people writing in afterwards. How about $1,000 a square foot? And you want to build something that's 10,000 square feet. It's not a difficult process. Once you've got the permits in place, mm -hmm. if it's 1000 bucks a square foot, you're looking at uh, maybe $10 million bucks yeah. plus the cost of demolition. Not 40, not 80. That's the way the real world works. And I think that's perhaps part of the discussion here is not so much whether it should or should not be, is that those who are making the decisions are consulting the price into oblivion. Like everything else, uh, it doesn't cost uh, more than what it costs to build any other home. There are, of course, other factors. Yeah. Security, security has to be a little bit more improved. Technology. But that's why I'm going from 800, 700 bucks a square foot to 1,000 a square foot to cover that. And believe me, there isn't a single builder out there who isn't uh, nodding his head in approval saying, yeah, McTagg knows what he's talking about. By the way, I do know what I'm talking about. Dad was a builder. I built my own homes. And in 1981, I happened to be working with a guy 40 years ago named Paul Cosgrove, Minister of Housing, when the country was going bankrupt right. and people were losing their homes. Yeah, and see, like, it just seems wild to me. I mean, I like to, home building is a thing that I've been a fan of, Dan. And in fact, I recently got accepted into a program for architectural technologies. I, I put it off because I couldn't handle the workload and, and keep doing my job and my career here. But my the notion for me was to be certified to learn how to design buildings three stories and less, right? So I love yeah. that stuff. And even I know, like, $5 million gets you one hell of a house when you're not paying for the land right? That's a pretty opulent home for 5 million. So yeah, even if you went to 10 million and you're not paying for the land, like no. that, that is a remarkably uh, fancy home. And even if you threw five or $10 million at it for just technology, cause it's the prime minister and some sort of secret robot AI drones that fly around the place and protect you, I don't care, make it up. It still doesn't get to 30, 40 million. And it asks, it begs the question, when you hear an MP go out and say, it's only $10 million, where you hear the Liberal government today go and say, well, we spent $100 million with McKinley, have they lost touch with yes. how much a dollar is worth? 
I don't think they understand. Um, I, nor has there been any fiscal uh, review. I don't think Christia Freeland uh, has the gravitas as Paul Martin did, or as Mitchell Sharp might have, you know, generations before that, when I was a much younger uh, liberal buck, to say, you know, this is how the finances run. This is how you ensure that the programs and the, and the projects and the ideas and priorities that you want are sustainably financially, because we all want everything for the country. But to simply spend with abandon and then back that up with modern monetary theory or some kind of, you know, ex, you know, weird, bizarre thing that says, oh, our, you know, uh, the debt to GDP is nothing. And uh, don't worry about it. Interest rates are only 1%. Sorry, they're 7%, 6% now. Right. We have to be very careful because this is a generation of not just politicians, but a generation of Canadians, I fear, who haven't experienced um, the very significant sting of when the cupboards are bare, the finances of the country are in are in a shambles how you manage to make ends meet it's going to be very difficult and very painful and not just for canadians it's going to be more difficult in days to come for politicians to continue uh you know writing checks uh that are likely to bounce it's not like it's not getting cared for i mean i don't know if you've ever walked by there i have walked by 24 sussex last summer must have been last summer maybe the summer before and by the way there's still an rcmp officer posted in the driveway Right. I mean, at the time they were still using the kitchen and cooking there to go over to the cottage across the street to deliver the food and all the other things that were, were happening. It's not like this is sitting there not costing money every day. Yeah, it's not sitting and being idle is not necessarily a good thing either, as we know. Um, yes, it's it's functional, but it's below it's subpar. And by subpar, it means that the lap boards and the uh, uh, you know the, the uh, rough and putty coats are starting to show their age and breaking. And there's been water damage. There may also be mold. There may also be asbestos. Yeah. Well, let's face it; awesome. these are things we're done. So that's you know the question isn't so much hey, do we keep it, remediate it, fix it, uh, or do we simply demolish it? The thing is, I in 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 the context of what we can do to build just about anything. Um, it seems to me that uh, it's getting far-fetched. And it's far-fetched because there's a lot of notice on it. If someone had set aside and said, look, I can fix this, bring it to a certain standard, it's not going to be perfect, I guarantee you that the private sector can do a pretty good job as long as soft costs don't go through the roof. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're a student of, you know, parliamentary democracy in general, Kensington, yada, yada. Um, is, it, is it such a symbol in the history of Canadian um, parliament, government, country, that it shouldn't be torn down and just rebuilt at this point because it seems like a bit of a lost cause? Or is it something that's actually worth restoring because of some sort of symbolism that we as Canadians may not understand? Well, look, the house itself is probably about 130 years old, 120, 130. It, it, has, it is a, a historical uh, building by all accounts. Uh, demolishing it may not be possible. But I think in terms of, you know, how many people have been in there? They know the Governor General's residence. That's worth keeping. Um, and Sussex can be there, but perhaps rehabilitated uh, or made into looking something decent. An example, your House of Commons. I mean, to the untrained eye, it, it wouldn't be any different than the House of Commons you saw, you know, from, you know, the, 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 the minimal advantage we had 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet it's the old 
gosh, it was an old empty, you know, yard uh, in the middle of the West Block. It used to be a, a restaurant uh, for staffers back uh, in my time in the 80s. Um, and now that's your that's your house of commons. So it's possible to rebuild these things, to bring them up to speed. And we've done a good job, I think, on pretty much every building there. I think it's a one-day debate, get the decision done, and then uh, move on uh, and try to ensure that the price, whatever de decision is made, uh, is kept. I believe it should be kept. I happen to believe that that's an important place. 24 Sussex means a lot to a lot of people. It's part of the, you know, part of the folklore. It's like, you know, <laughs> Pennsylvania Avenue. It's the same thing. Can Canadians, I think, uh, would have an expectation, uh, like 10 Downing, that we have a place for our prime minister or, the, or, you know, the person who is going to lead our country, regardless of whether we like them or not. Mm -hmm. uh, well, exactly. I, I, the The office of the prime minister, and I, I try to be distinct in that part of the conversation when we when we chat about that, right? Um, the The whether I agree or disagree with the guy who's in there and what he's doing, I do believe that the office commands a level of uh, respect uh, in general from him, which sometimes is debatable too, but also from us. I mean, to me, that I mean, maybe that's romanticizing it. I don't know. But when we look at the way that they're spending money, I mean, in 2016, um, they've raised the, the amount of consultant fees, personal fees and all that stuff by like, well, it's kind of like everything else, like the cost of the size of government's gone up 25%. Um, this population of the country has not gone up by 25%. And yet they've gone up like $20 billion of money spent since 2015 when he actually said he was going to reduce the amount. It's gone up 60% is the number that was reported in the National Post. You know, I saw a lot of friends that were members of Parliament. Some were new and left very quickly. I didn't like what they saw, but almost invariably, every one of them said, what's going on, you know? It's 2015, 2016, 2017. The economy's okay. Everything's fine. Why are you? Uh, why are you in? Why are you increasing the nation's debt by 150 billion bucks? You don't spend like that in good, you know, in good times. You tend to use that as an opportunity to make sure you, as it were, ante up or at least uh, you know, uh, fill the silos to make sure that you can withstand what inevitably inevitably happened in 2020. And you know what? It's, it's almost folklorish, but you know, you you. You prepare for bad times, and this this group didn't. So, I mean, they'll get a pass because it's COVID, and they had to spend six hundred billion bucks or whatever the amount was to give people money that many probably needed, some didn't, mm -hmm. uh, and some abused. We'll deal with that later. Well, actually, we probably won't because we don't think it's there's anything there's any point in doing you it. Can't but even that's find those people. That. No, well, I think you can. It's just uh, they're more more interested in shaking down people for, you know, two cents on your carbon tax, and they are worried about fifteen billion bucks that they lost. But that aside, you know, to me, it's they weren't prudent because they were not. They were given a mandate to act like New Democrats, and I, you know, even Tom Mulcair will lament this that the you know the tw the crop that came in in twenty fifteen, many of them who I knew, um, you know, were not fiscally, uh, you know, aware. Mm. They were not capital woke. <laughs> they didn't care. Uh, they We had seen, you know, 15, 20 years of solid economic uh, times, except for 2008. We dodged the bullet for a variety of reasons. Both parties can take a bow on that one. Uh, the Conservatives will say it's because, you know, they they managed during a time in the global meltdown that we saw 15 years ago. And Liberals will say, yes, but we didn't allow banks to go out and do what they did in the United States and investment companies and basically play, you know, casino with your money. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is that this is a group uh, in Ottawa today that has, uh, you know, no attachment to the hardship 
uh, and the struggles and the problems that we saw in the 70s, the 80s, and even the early 90s when uh, you'll fondly remember Canada almost became an honorary member of the IMF Debt Club. And that was in 1997. I remember the Wall Street Journal was touting that. And a lot of people got very ticked off, but it was true at the time. It was very embarrassing for the country. And we may very well revisit those days sooner or later. Governments have spent a lot of money on consultancy fees. Um, it's increased more since 2015 with the Liberal government. But at the same time, Dan, I also look at the Conservatives and say, like, why were you not setting the place on fire if this kind of spending was happening too? I mean, there's got to be accountability inside the Conservatives back in the day because since 2015, because for the most part, they did let it happen. They didn't set fire to the place when this money was being going out the door too. I mean, I think there is accountability on both sides. There is. And the question is, you know, in the same way you would say, well, the role of members of parliament has been eclipsed under both governments, which is true. Um, I think we'd have to look at this more carefully and say to both of them, what's the point of having a civil service? What's the point of having, uh, you know, uh, you know, assistant deputy ministers? What's the point of having the Privy Council office? These are smart people. We hire them to be smart people, and they are devoted to the purpose and the principles of the Department of Government and the ministerial accountability. You throw that out the window in favor of, you know, uh, you know, uh, contracts and uh, all sorts of wonderful, you know, uh, you know, lobby groups, or more importantly, in this case, uh, organizations that provide you consulting fees. Tell me what consulting fees is, are. Mm. Everybody can be hold themselves out to be a consultant. I'm a consultant. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm a consultant. But, yeah, I'm a, I, I yes, do coaching yeah. on speaking, right? <laughs> the question, though, is if it's going to replicate, duplicate what is already being done, mm -hmm. uh, the public is not well served. And I think the whole purpose of having a consultancy is, in many respects, to demonstrate that the federal government, regardless of the political stripe, uh, doesn't trust the civil service or those that are in there. And if that's the case, we have a bigger problem on our hands. Maybe it's time for civil servants to uh, push back on this rather than, you know, whip, hoping one party wins versus another. And I think we know who that is. Well, um, big change coming any um, any sooner than, than what's going on. I mean, the hypocrisy is a little thick when the exact problems that have been created by the liberal NDP um, bromance that's been going on. Um, are the same things that the NDP leader is out there saying, we're going to hold them accountable for this. And I think the collective groan and eye roll from the country is like, you actually did that with them, right? Like we've lost touch with who these parties are. We've lost touch with anybody taking any sort of responsibility. And Pierre Polyev right now sounds like the, um, you know, the black duck of the family um, because he's, Pierre Polyev sounds like the ugly step cousin of, of the of the government because, you know, like his tone or not, he's being very pragmatic about it. And it almost sounds so out of context. Well, and there is where uh, destiny lies. I mean, for the longest time, Canadians didn't care. Times were good. Money was ever abundant. Everyone had jobs. You know, uh, credit was easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, you could do anything, get anything. You know, we've never experienced inflationary problems. I think Canadians are paying more attention now. They have to. In the past, it's always been, hey, they're clowns. Let them do their own thing, whatever. Uh, you know, my my ex goes beside least least damaging, least annoying of the of the of the bunch. No longer. Yeah. Canadians can't afford to make ends meet. Twenty two percent of people are bankrupt. There's a large number. Just reading the reports today, Canadians who've got themselves into hawk over vehicles the frenzy we saw we're now we're seeing from cibc and others saying hey guess what defaults are on the rise 
and they were up to pre-pandemic levels and then some. My sense is that people are paying more attention. As they pay more attention, they realize that they have a government, uh, really of three parties that are almost inimical, liberal, conservative, uh, liberal, NDP, green, to a lesser extent, block on most issues. And they've had enough. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an alternative that's coming out. And I think you're starting to see that in the polls. I think Canadians are starting to pay attention because they realize there's a connection between their standard of living, their ability to make ends meet, and the policies of the clowns up there who uh, who think that virtue signaling is how you govern a country. And you govern it, uh, unfortunately, to the point where it's become financially, uh, you know, at uh, in, in a very difficult situation. I think the cupboards are bare in this country, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I don't think we're in dire straits. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, but we're heading there. And uh, I think Canadians are going to definitely take it out on the parties, uh, particularly the NDP and the Liberals, for having put this uh, put this contraption together. And now it doesn't work. Uh, and there's no money to fix it. It's the truth. And uh, the solution to that for another conversation, of course, would be accessing energy. Dan is um, Canadians for Affordable Energy. If you want to look that up, but Dan McTagg, uh, to me, my some of my favorite conversations we share, brother, are the ones that we get to learn about what happens behind the scenes. A former Liberal MP for many, many, many years, 18 years, I think it was. Oh, I'm dating you. Oh, geez. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, but thanks for being here, brother. And thank you for the insights. I mean, I just don't understand how we can't fix a house for a fraction of what they spend on other people to tell them what to do for jobs we hired them for. Doesn't add up to me. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here, brother. You can make it happen, Shane. Let's do it. Appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Have a good night. Cheers. This is the Shift Podcast. I lost my wallet once. And I was really worried for a long time. And then I got a new wallet. And about a year later, I found it. Now, I blamed my kids. I blamed my friends. I blamed everybody. And what happened was I have this little shelf by the back door. I put my wallet on the shelf and probably walking out of the door, somebody bumped the shelf. The wallet fell behind the shelf. It wasn't until I was cleaning out the garage that I found my wallet. I'm like, oh, it fell behind the shelf. You see... That was inconvenient. I had to get a new driver's license and new cards and whatever. Yeah. But I didn't, that was just a wallet, Laura. It's just and a pain in the butt. That's right. It was just a wallet. And yet there is this new story that has come out uh, that is about losing stuff that I find really concerning. Laura Boxman, RSIC, Consulting Scientist, Radiation Safety Institute of Canada. Laura, somebody lost some really bad stuff. Well, let's say medium bad stuff. Yeah. So they, they in the lost, scope of my wallet <laughs> is bad stuff. Wallet is bad. Yeah, they lost a radioactive source capsule from a device that had been in use in a mine, and in transport out of the mine. And this is in Australia, um, so transport out of the mine to a location where they were going to be dealing with the the disposal, the the source disappeared, and so it was a very long trip. It was, what, 1,400 kilometers or something like that. Mm. And when they were going through the stuff on the truck, they realized that the source was not where it was supposed to be. And therefore, where the heck was it along that transport route? Okay, did they check the garage behind the shoe rack, first of all? I I think they did a lot of checking in both places. So they went back to the mine to say, did this stuff really actually get on the truck? And then they were looking where it was supposed to have been unloaded from the truck. And then eventually came to the conclusion that it wasn't in either location which meant it was somewhere between one location and the other. Okay. Um, I've always wondered how people lose one shoe on a highway. 
I feel like this is this is kind of like that. It kind of is, and it kind of isn't. So when when I look at the way radioactive material is shipped in Canada, I'm hard pressed to figure out how they lost this particular source in Australia, because number one, the source is a type that's held in what we call a gauge. So gauge is a device that a radioactive source capsule, and they're not very big. The source capsules are, this one was eight millimeters by six millimeter, millimeters, I can speak, <laughs> really tiny, less than a centimeter. So, and that's inside a device, which could be, you know, six to eight inches in diameter. And it's sealed and it's fixed inside so that it's, it's emitting its radiation for the use when it's in place in the morning. And when you're transporting it, you lock the sugar closed, you put it in a case, which should contain it. And then that case goes in a package uh, and then it goes on a truck. And so right. how it comes out of the gauge and then out of the case and out of the package and out of the truck onto the ground at the side of the road, I don't understand. So if you look- Well, I've watched these movies before, Laura. This is because they don't do up the briefcase that's handcuffed to the spy's wrist tight enough. Right, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so they had this issue where the, the little tiny source came out in transit, and it was a very long trip they went on, right? So, you know, around in Canada, there's what? There's thousands and thousands of shipments of radioactive material every year. Really? Yeah, really? yeah, it's everywhere. So people don't realize radiation is actually used in a lot of different industries. Do you drink beer? I, I, yeah, I'm more of a cider person, yeah, but I've been known to settle beer, for a beer from time to time. Beer, cider, pop, it's all filled on machines. A lot of those machines use a gauge to say, oh, it's full, stop, bring me the next oh, one. Yeah. So it's in all sorts of different industries. It's in mining, it's in food processing, it's in um, obviously nuclear medicine departments. Yeah, materials around. Yeah, and that stuff has to get transported. We use it daily in construction. If you're constructing a road, nuclear density gauges are used to measure that it's compacted properly. Uh -huh. They're transported to and from the job site every day. So you have thousands of shipments every day. And I was hoping this is going to make me feel better, Laura. This is not making me feel better. <laughs> statistics. So out of those thousands of shipments every day, and where all of these things are kept, the the average of the past five years is five in Canada have been lost or stolen. So out of thousands, five okay. sources were lost and stolen on average in the past five years. I still feel like that's a lot. Um, it's the, not okay, zero. So, so it's, you know, you have to, you, there is a concern because it isn't zero, but it's yeah. a very small percentage. Okay, so you said it's medium bad stuff. So I, I'm what I'm hearing is is that we we have it in tools. Yeah. Um, and you talked about the gauge being very small, but I mean, if I put this in my palm of my hand, can you give us a similar size of item that we're talking was lost here? Are we talking about a shoebox or are we talking about a safety pin? So the the source itself, um, tip of your finger, tip of your little. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's. Not very big. It's less than a centimeter in diameter and height. Um, okay. and, and that would have been inside something that's about the size of a, a five-pin bowling ball. Okay. Okay, that's good. That makes sense then. So uh, I don't know if you know what happened yet. Um, is it one of those things that says do not open? So what's the first thing you do is you open it because yeah. you're curious? Is that what happens? So it's not clear to me from the news articles out of Australia exactly how the source came loose from where it was and made its way out of the truck. Um, I think that there's going to obviously be some more investigations being done in Australia where they look into that. Um, 
because even if it came out of the gauge, it shouldn't have come out of the package. Right. So, so the barriers that are in place to ensure transportation of radioactive material is safe, at least one of those barriers, if not a couple of those barriers, broke down in this particular case in Australia. Yeah, not to mention close the door on the back of the darn truck. That, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, okay, so which piece of it was lost? The bowling ball size piece or the fingertip piece? Fingertip size piece. So that that little piece came out of all the other stuff. Okay. But then if it's a 1,400 kilometer trip, how do you find that? Really, really, really carefully. <laughs> Holy. It's really hard. It, it's so... This is a not particularly radioactive source, so it's not like I'm going to be zooming down the highway. Oh, there it was. Yeah, right. right. So we're going to have to be very close to it before you start to see radioactivity, which is in a way really good because it wasn't a particular hazard for people who are driving by. Right. Is it too it's simple cool. to say just go look at nighttime for glow in the dark things? Yeah, that's too simple. As, that's too much as, like The Simpsons. As much as I would love to say you know glows in the dark, it most most cases radiation doesn't actually glow in the dark. So we rely on instrumentation. But that is the nice thing. We can use instrumentation to measure whether it's there or not. And that's basically what they did. They were carefully going up and down the road and using radiation detection instruments. I like working with radiation because I can use the instruments. I can tell you, do I see it right here or not? Um, You know, if we have a chemical fire, are my tomatoes okay to eat? Well, here, let's take a sample and send it off to the lab. We might get it back in a couple of weeks. With radiation measurements, I can like right now, here it is or here it isn't. Yeah. Are we hypersensitive to this? Because there's been so much conversation around Ukraine, around, you know, warfare. We've heard more and more about these kinds of things lately. Um, You know, criminality in general, I think it's safe to say, has been on the rise around the world, plus Hollywood. Um, Then then we have a, a chunk of this stuff go missing. We do just kind of always assume the worst, but is it probably good for us to assume that because i mean it's not like you should be putting the stuff in your pocket and taking it to your rock collection and that's the, that was what the issue and that's the way that's why the australian government i think i mean obviously you don't work with the australian government but it makes sense to me but that's why they put the notice out to say hey if you see it let us know because this isn't something we want you to carry around in your pocket it's not particularly dangerous that people work with this stuff every day but they work with it under specific controls and they know right. what it is so if you're carrying it around in your pocket, is it really that safe? Like that's why they put the notice up to say, hey, pay attention. We're going to really look for this. But in the meantime, if you saw it, tell us. Um, it's like putting chemicals in a plastic bottle and carrying them around. Is it really safe to do that if you don't know what right. it is? So that sort of thing. Um, sorry, I lost your, your question there. I was, I was, Oh, it's probably about the Simpsons and glow in the dark. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, do we know what it was, what it was, like what it was, have they released what it actually was, what it was used for? And then of course, my next question um, was, uh, where does it go in this case? Yeah. So what they did say was that it was a device. It was a, it was a source that was inside a device and it's a type of radioactive material called cesium-137. Um, and so we know that it's a gamma emitter and like I said, it, it's, cesium-137 is in sources all across the world. We, we use it all the time. It's a convenient uh, source of gamma for doing the types of stuff that we need with gauges or with um, uh, bottle filling or density measurements, things like that. Um, it's not really active in this particular size of a, of a capsule. So it was a, a moderate source. There are some misleading numbers. I've seen different activity numbers in the paper as to exactly... They were online articles as to how big it really is. 
but it was from a gauge. So that was the question. He said, what was it used for and where was it sort of going? Mm-hmm. So it was in a device at a mine. So I'm assuming that it would have been part of the process. And you can use these for measuring density. You can use it for measuring flow. So it could have been on a process line that helps them know how density, how dense it is, or is it flowing the right speed or things like that. Um, and then when they reach a certain lifespan, the the they get disposed of to a radioactive waste storage facility and disposal facility. So my assumption, and it doesn't exactly say, is that the gauge, the mine was done with it, and it was either going for repair or it was going for disposal. Mm-hmm. And so there's a process whereby you have to track them and know where they're going and things like that. So they did know where it was going. And they when they, it wasn't just like, you know, hey, um, I, I wanted to buy this and it wasn't there. It went to the place the shipment went where it was supposed to go. It's just that they had a problem during transport. So mm. they were following the disposal property, if that's what they were doing, rather than repair. But the packaging was not adequate. Okay, this is cool. Is there anything bad guys could do with this, though? Like, if we lose these kinds of things? I'm not asking you to speculate in this case because oh. I don't want to create, like, this false apocalyptic moment. But yeah. if somebody were to steal this stuff, is there any value to it that they could use for, for bad things? Or can they resell this stuff? It's pretty minimal that what they would be able to use with it. I mean, like I said, you can sell me, a, I can have a bottle of chemicals. If I threaten somebody with a bottle of chemicals and they don't know what it is, they're going to be scared. Right. So so you have that factor to it. If somebody had it who wasn't supposed to, they could threaten and people would be scared because we don't, most people don't understand radiation or what the hazards are. But in terms of, um, it's very small in the scheme of things. People think of dirty bombs. You're not going to make a dirty bomb with this sort of thing. It's, it's just not useful for that sort of thing useful you know yeah. <laughs> i'm not a terrorist who's going to be saying oh, i'm not one of these for making a dirty bomb but it's not good for that much radioactivity so yeah okay you disperse it but it's like a fear factor probably real real harm mm-hmm. i don't know that it would be that dangerous hmm. it would be better it's if it stayed in the capsule well, that's kind of what I, you just read my mind. I was like, probably still better that it just goes to the shelf where it's supposed yeah. to go though, right? So it's better if it goes to the disposal than it, than it gets spread around. We, there are historical incidents where uh, bigger sources than this were taken apart and, and people died from it. But yeah. um, that was some significant source and they were out for a long time. So this one thankfully was found intact. Um, the public was warned about it. Don't put it in your pocket. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, you know, when you go to work and you sometimes bring home that clipboard or the iPad or whatever from work, I was just kind of worried, like, does somebody go in and in their lab coat, they're like, you know, oh, what's that? And they go to do their laundry and they find these kinds of things. I mean, that's just a human, all jokes Mm -hmm. aside. I mean, that's a human thing and safety protocols and all, um, but safety protocols don't fix stupid. No. And that's why you have to have barriers in place so that you have inventory control and lock and key and only the people who need to and are trained to work with them can use them and that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, this is absolutely fascinating. I can't believe you do this at work every day. And you probably know Jack Ryan, like you just call him and he comes and saves the day. And, uh, and, uh, it's quite fascinating. What do you love about this though? I mean, is it the nuclear part? Is it the, you know, the science rays part? Is it the impact and uses of these things? What really gets you there? I, I like all aspects of radiation safety. So, um, one of the interesting things I find is one of the things I get to do with the radiation safety Institute of Canada is I get to teach people about radiation, how to work with it safely. And when you're teaching people, what is it and what sort of precautions do you put in place so that you don't lose it, that you're working with it safely, that people aren't scared of it because they might understand. 
I find that very interesting. So I really like yeah. the, the fact that the Radiation Safety Institute offers courses to people, whether it's we're offering a course to general awareness, you know, hey, you have this stuff in your facility, you should know what it is, all the way up to the people who are, we call radiation safety officers, who are the ones who are in charge of the radiation safety program. So I get to teach all different levels of people with mm-hmm. the Institute and, and and sometimes I can consult and help them put a program together. They want to do a particular task. How do we do that safely? Um, we can go to different sites and look at their facilities and say, are you doing what you said? You know, do an audit. Are you doing what you said? What could you do better? What are you doing that's great? What are you doing that could have improvement? So there's all sorts of different aspects. And I, I admit I'm a nerd. If I can sit down and do some math problems, awesome, great, sign me up. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. But I mean, there's the belief, it must be that belief, right? About this stuff is, if you use it properly, look at all the great things it can do and that's worth protecting. I mean, that's what kind of safety is, right? It is. You know, and I think it's disappointing that the general population doesn't understand radiation because it's an, it is a carcinogen. We know radiation can cause cancer. Quite frankly, radiation isn't that good at causing cancer compared to a lot of other things like chemicals. Um, even heat in a particular amount of time can cause cancer, right? So it, it's, yes, it causes cancer. Other things cause cancer. Stuff we put on our grass causes cancer. Um, but people don't understand it. And so mm. if you don't understand it, it's frightening. And if we did a better job of explaining it to people so that they understood it, I think that there would be a lot less stigma. We wouldn't be as afraid of it when something like this happens. We would have a better understanding. And, um, and I think that would actually relieve a lot of stress in a lot yeah. of in a lot of cases. When I work with people, if something's happened with radiation, and you know they're worried, oh my god, I'm not exposed to radiation. That stress is probably more dangerous to them in a lot of those situations than the actual radiation exposure was, because we're working with low levels in a controlled environment, and incidents with major consequences are really quite rare. But it's the fear. I don't know what it is. I, I can't. Well, not everything's Fukushima is kind of what I was thinking, exactly. right? Like that's that's where everyone goes. They think of those images. They think of all the things they've, they've seen. Three Mile Island. You think of, um, you know, terrible. Chernobyl. Yep. And, and what Chernobyl is going through in the second version of the life, the post-breakdown life cycle too, right? Yep. So, exactly. Um, it is kind of wild. It's wild when we think about it and we, we look at the power of all of it. Um, it is kind of scary at times. But regardless of safety... And knowing more about it, don't lose it though. How about we just, that's good. Let's just agree. Let's not lose it. I like that. Let's not lose that. Thanks for being here, Laura. I really appreciate you. I'm very glad to be able to chat with you this evening. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day. I, I, yeah, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. Uh, I think the kind of fun fairs are cool. I think the way, you know, kind of kids enjoy it in school is, is, is interesting. It's a nice way to get them to learn about the weather. But it seems like the kind of thing that we should kind of not pay as much attention to, like as we get older. I feel like it's almost like just a for kids thing, but it's not. And that is has always been weird to me. Yeah, I mean, it's for fun, right? I like free it, pancakes. Yeah, there's most, wrong with it. Most of them give away free pancakes. So that's a question. Is Shrove Tuesday, this is Pancake Tuesday, right? 
and mm-hmm. Groundhog Day. What if we just combined both of them? Then I'd oh, be very yeah. okay with Groundhog Day. We have less to talk about, so that's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're bored. Look, it's here's the thing about Groundhog Day. This is what happens. It's been five weeks since anybody's had any sort of event to talk about. Yep. Uh, and I think that people need something in January to look forward to. I, it's such a long haul for so many people. It seems to me to be a great opportunity to pop something on in there, right? I mean, we're so excited about these little fuzzy beasts getting hauled out of their slumber. You know, it's weird. We celebrate it. Or maybe just watch the movie. A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat. Weatherman Phil Connors is spending the day in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Phil? Ned! Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Bing! But Phil's about to find out he's not just stuck in Puxatawney. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? Chance of departure today, 100%. He's stuck in Groundhog Day. Okay, so you know, it's folklore, there's fun, the groundhog emerges from its burrow, you know, if it sees its shadow, if it doesn't see its shadow. In Quebec, groundhog did not see its shadow this year, because it had no shadow, because it was dead. What started off as a cheerful annual celebration, quickly turned to sorrow. Je vous annonce la mort de Fred. Quebec's very own furry forecaster, Fred Lamarmotte, died just before giving his annual Groundhog Day prediction. Organizers say the late-famed whistle pig of nine years old showed no vital signs, presumably dying during hibernation, where rodents can lose up to 20 to 48 percent of their body weight. On va avoir la prédiction. Despite the loss, a prediction done by a committee of children confirmed winter is here to stay. This as a vicious cold snap sets in across the province. Uh, text comes in. It says from Jim, it says Groundhog Day is a waste of time. Groundhog burgers would be better. Ouch. I don't think that would taste very good. <laughs> I don't think it tastes very good either. But you think that if they're about to do this big event that they'd poke the little um fred le marmot before they would see um you know just to make sure he moves okay so if the groundhog does see a shadow and retreats six more weeks of winter if it does not see its shadow spring is just around the corner and if it shows up dead the world ends like i don't know what's the meaning there (laughs) i don't think they planned for that one i don't think anybody's had the folklore uh and we'll find out. That's that's the folklore, actually. It's just yeah. Well, wait to see. Fred is dead. Uh, that was Global's Braden Jagger, by the way. It turns out that when the um, when the groundhog does emerge and and sees a chalk outline, it's bad news. That's all we know. <laughs> That'd be a chalk outline where Fred was chalk last year. Out. Yeah. That'd be a really uh, funny chalk outline. Like, can you imagine how hilarious that would look just on the ground? You know, when my uh, chalk, 
yeah, dead Fred. You know, my my uh, uncles moved into their first apartment in the sketchy part of Calgary when my grandma went to go visit. They drew a chalk uh, outline of a dead oh, body no. on the floor just to say, "Hey, mom, welcome to our new flat." Oh I don't no, she liked that very much. Last year, the weather-minded rodent also predicted six more weeks of winter. In 2022, Fred worked from home again due to the pandemic. Only a few people were on hand for the annual tra- uh, tradition, just so you know. It was broadcast on community television, and you could hear the crowd in the background. because he said, What he says is, I, I now, I'm announcing the death of Fred. And, um, and you hear, oh, uh, Shubanaki, Shubanaki, yes. Sam. Nova Scotia's most famous groundhog <laughs> apparently saw her shadow this morning as she survived and emerged from the snow-covered enclosure <laughs> at a wildlife park north of Halifax. Way to go, Sam, for not dying, breaking the hearts of the children. Fred's so selfish. <sighs> that is kind of sad, though. It is, <laughs> like, is kind of sad. Because he <laughs> says, I'm announcing the death of Fred, and the crowd goes, oh, Pancakes? Like what? <laughs> yeah, we've got pancakes, fresh maple right. syrup. It's what Fred would have uh, wanted. This is Are You Okay With? I'm Shane Hewitt. And uh, let's start the next story completely out of context. That's just a stupid boulder. It's not just a boulder. It's a rock. <laughs> Are you okay with rocks? You know, Shane, uh, I have had one capitalistic venture in my entire life. Oh, when I God. was in uh, grade four, grade four, maybe grade three, me and my buddy Miles uh, started a pet rock business where I would go wow. around the playground and find pet rocks and draw faces on them and sell them for twenty-five cents. I think I sold like ten. It was pretty, it was pretty lucrative right. back then. You know, where you could get something from the vending machine for fifty cents. So that was cool. Uh, so yeah, I would say by that merit alone and the precious memories of selling pet rocks on the playground. Yes. I'm okay with rocks. Ryan's first business was a fraud. Also, uh, no, I sold, uh, you know, I sold, uh, memories to kids. <laughs> Listen to you. Hey, capitalist filth. I love it. Um, Money. That, that's really great. Money. Um, that, you know, and that's that's what you're doing, really, is you're just simply mm-hmm. um, offering the feelings and companionship is what you were selling. So good for you. Um, okay, so are you okay with rocks? A, a young New Brunswick girl is riding high after something near and dear to her heart has returned to her. Her lucky rock is back home. That rock went on an unbelievable adventure that took the gem thousands of miles away. Vanessa Wright has the story. And then when I got the phone call, I was just flabbergasted. Like at that, I didn't even know at that point when I got the call that it was more than just a rock. I was like, are you kidding me? Like her rock was found. It made an unbelievable journey between countries back into the hands of its 11 year old owner, Georgia LeMessure. It's just been my special lucky rock that I take with me places to bring me good luck. LeMessure, who lives in New Brunswick, collected her lucky rock during a frequent visit to Vancouver. But after falling asleep on a red eye from Vancouver to Halifax, she noticed her lucky rock was missing and instantly believed it would be gone forever. 
Her mother, Erica Henderson, had no expectations of the rock being tracked down after being told the plane was on its way to London, England. Days went by before Henderson received a text from an Air Canada employee informing her the rock had been found. So the rock had gone from Vancouver to Halifax to England to Toronto and then it fell back to Halifax. Henderson had the rock mailed from Halifax to their home in New Brunswick and later learned that the employee who cleaned the plane was the one to find the rock. He gave it to his friend, who was a geologist, to look at. It turns out the lucky rock is actually a rare piece of fossilized amber that is said to be about 70 million years old. Then I got all the details and went downstairs with my camera and I woke her up filming the whole thing. Want all your good news? What? I just got a phone call from the airport in Halifax. And guess what they found? Uh huh. That's cool. Uh huh. It's cool. See, eh? airport people work hard for travelers. They get all this bad rap all the time. But that's a great customer service story. Found the lucky rock. That is cool. I feel like I have to. Have to. They have to. Oh, why is that not working? Do you have a rock sound effect? Can't play the current song. Thanks. Try this one. (laughs) Oh, man. I have no idea what you're trying to play. Is it Rock Lobster? Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How about that? I do have All a right. rock song um, for you, though. Oh, thank you very much. Um, mm-hmm. She doesn't even... This, by the way, this little girl, she's amazing. And is there anything cuter than a little girl with like a maritime accent? No. Uh, she doesn't want to get it appraised. She doesn't doesn't care what it costs. It's her favorite, favorite rock of all things. It's not going to be sold. That is awesome. And what a little cutie patootie right there. Now, because the story is all about rocks, we're taking this opportunity to share a song with you. Uh, Roxanne, uh, this one will work, sort of, from Ryan uh, Police. But it's 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 not about Roxanne so much as it it's Roxanne without the ant. Rocks. Rocks. <laughs> Rocks. 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 That is so good. Internet is oh. a magical place. You can find Rocks. anything on YouTube. <laughs> that is so good. I like how cool is that? Hey, I, I love it. Mention okay. that when that is playing, the only thing you see on the screen is just a picture of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's it. Oh, even better. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> how are we doing here for time? We're doing okay. Hey, I think we're all right. Yeah, we're doing good. All right. Um, it is Friday. I know. Which one do you want to do? You want to do the Karen? Oh, the Karen the one's real. really good. Is Karen it? one's we do really the Karen good. One? But oh, actually, mm, the wheel oh. one is really great, and it takes it? us to our favorite place. Oh, okay. So. Let's go on a trip then. Are you okay with Wheel of Fortune? It's like it will. It, that show will be on television till the day a meteor strikes the planet and ends it. You know, it will be on forever. And I think mm-hmm. that just goes to show why 
it's just such a good game show. I mean, it's a simple concept that anybody can enjoy and they've got a, you know, a host that will be there till the end of time. And, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's fantastic. Although I forget the name of it. it. It's Pat. It's, it's Pat, right? That's the name of the Pat Sajak. Yeah. Pat Sajak. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Icon. I mean, that's the way it goes. All right. Um, it's a game show that has stood the test of time, even though awkward moments can happen on it. That's for sure. I'd like to solve. Well, you know, if you solve, there's a $7,000 jackpot. Go ahead. Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. Whoa! I'm impressed. Thank you. Wow. 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 That's crazy. That's crazy. I have just one thing to say to you. That's weird. <laughs> That's him trying to be Scooby-Doo, I think. Oh, that was like a hello, Reggie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, a game show that was inspired by Wheel of Fortune has been called out, and it's now getting sued. Shocker. It all went down in Florida. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida. Straight drill. <laughs> Wipe out. Okay, uh, a man has filed a defamation suit against a Florida sheriff who posts weekly Wheel of Fugitive videos on social media. A Florida sheriff may have to find a new way to catch alleged crooks. Brevard County Sheriff Wayne Ivey is now being sued for his weekly Wheel of Fugitive videos posted to social media. In the videos you can see right here, Ivey spins a wheel with photos of what are described as 10 of the county's most wanted fugitives. The man who was filed the defamation lawsuit says that he was not a fugitive when his name and image appeared several times in 2021. He claims he lost his job because of it. So far, the Brevard County Sheriff's Office has not commented on the lawsuit. And they probably won't because it's a lawsuit. So there you go. Now, that was from CBS News. During the Wheel of Fugitive, a disclaimer rolls across the bottom of the screen reading in part. The suspects may have since been arrested or their alleged charges otherwise resolved or dismissed. A spokesman for the sheriff's office on Monday didn't respond to an email asking for comment. Uh, but Sheriff Ivy has told Associated Press that everybody watches it. Even the fugitives watch it to see who becomes fugitive of the week. I hate to I break it to you, though, is yeah. that if you're on there and you're not a fugitive... Yeah, damn right you're gonna sue. Yeah, and and you know uh, the production value on it is actually surprisingly good. It's nice to know oh. that's where the police budget's going to is wheel of fugitive. So fantastic! Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show, and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.